Morning, friends. Welcome to church. It's really great to see you. And for those of you joining online as well, there's a few more uh, online this morning than the last few weeks, no doubt, uh, because of the weather and perhaps because of a few more isolations. Uh, the Frederick family have had their own little ISO experience this week as well. I'm very glad to be able to be here, uh, but I'm sure that there are many um, who aren't. And we're really encouraged that you are joining us uh, online. Uh, can I encourage all of you to have your Bibles open to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians? Uh, we're looking at the second half of chapter 11. Uh, you'll find that on page 1152. Uh, there is a service sheet, a sermon outline, uh, and on the bottom of the sermon outline is a little QR code. Uh, if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask, please feel free to scan that. You can submit the questions anonymously. Uh, and if there are any, we might have a question time afterwards. Uh, we had lots of questions come through uh, last week, particularly in the evening service, about the passage we were looking at last week. Because I was in ISO, I couldn't record uh, until yesterday morning, early yesterday morning, I couldn't record the answers to those, but we will do some of that this week. Uh, but I would especially encourage you, sorry for those of online, we don't have a link for you to follow for those questions. So those of you who are here, if you've got questions, I'd encourage you to ask them. Uh, because the folk who are at home won't have the chance to do that today. Well, let's turn to have a look at this passage. I'm a little bit intimidated after the reception that the kids talk got. I don't think I've heard booing uh, in the kids talk before with, uh, with the um, favouritism with that bit of cake. Uh, but let's have a look at what God's got to say to us in the second half of chapter 11. We'll place the words church and hate into the same sentence and it'll likely bring to mind for you the kind of tensions and divisions, the kind of antagonism and misgiving that divides those within the church from those who are without outside the church. Either perhaps the hateful way in which believers have sometimes treated those who are outside the church or perhaps the contempt that those outside the church sometimes show for the beliefs and convictions of those within the church. But in today's passage, Paul is scandalised by the realisation that it was actually those who were most at home in the church, those who appeared most invested in the church, those who were loving the church, at least so it seemed outwardly, who were actually guilty of most despising it or hating it. Those within the church, Paul says today, are those who are most guilty of despising and hating it. Now, their hatred and contempt that Paul is going to address in today's passage wasn't displayed in boredom with church or bitterness about the church. It wasn't displayed in perhaps hurt or anger about things that they'd experienced in the church before. Rather, they displayed their hatred, their contempt for the church in how they practiced their gathered meetings together. Now, let's have a look at how Paul begins what must have been quite a painful passage for him to write. Uh, have a look with me at the opening verses, verse 17. Verse 17 and following. <clears throat> Paul writes, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. You might remember that last week's passage, he began with praise. In this following directions, I have no praise for you, Paul writes. For your meetings do more harm than good. 
in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Ouch, that's a bit of a stinging rebuke, isn't it? Being told, actually, you know what, friends? It would be better if you just cancelled your meetings altogether. It's not just that their church meetings were worthless, spiritually speaking, you know, dull, uninspiring, irrelevant to everyday life. Their meetings were actually causing concrete harm. They'd have been a better witness to Jesus if they just cancelled their meetings altogether. We have here an echo of the concern that Paul had expressed right at the start of his letter to the Corinthian church, that he'd received these reports of divisions brewing in the life of the church in Corinth. But Paul's immediate response to these divisions perhaps left you a little bit confused, or it's slightly odd, isn't it, the way in which he expresses himself in response. He says, to some extent, I believe these divisions, no doubt there have to be differences among you, to show which of you have God's approval. Perhaps you picked up on the tone with which I read Paul's words there. Sarcasm is a tone that's a little difficult to communicate in written form sometimes, isn't it? Perhaps you've had that experience in sending a text and the sarcasm hasn't quite come across. But I think there is good reason for hearing in Paul's words here a scandalised sarcasm. For Paul goes on to make the point just about as forcefully as he possibly could make it, that the kind of differences that the Corinthian church have been promoting are a scandalous offence to God. The kind of differences that the Corinthian church have been promoting will bring no one any praise or any approval before God. Have a look with me at how Paul continues in verse 20. Paul writes, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Here Paul is tearing into those in the Corinthian church who imagined that the social and economic status divisions of their wider society should be replicated within church life as well, differentiating one believer from another. And in Corinthian culture, it was typical for the host of a dinner party to display their approval for various guests by treating them with different levels of honour. The closer the guest sat to the host, the more honour was reflected on that guest. The better food that was given to a guest, the more honour was reflected upon that guest. Where a guest sat, guest sat what a guest ate, was reflective of the honour within which they were held by the host of the dinner. Uh, in fact, there was a pagan satiricist, uh, a satire writer called Lucian, who poked fun 
at the way in which these dinner parties were often carried out. Uh, I've got it up, up on, there on the screen for you. Uh, writing to a friend, he writes, Since I am asked to dinner, why is not the same dinner served to me as to you? You eat oysters fattened in the Lucrine Lake while I suck a mussel through a hole in a shell. You get mushrooms while I get hog funguses. You gorge on a turtle dove, golden with fat, with its bloated rump. But a magpie that's died in its cage is set before me. Why do I dine with you, Ponticus? Even, why do I dine without you, Ponticus, even though I am dining with you? You get the point that this writer is making? And it seems that when the Corinthian church got together for their church gatherings to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they were differentiating between each other in a similar kind of manner, reflecting the worst of their own pagan culture. Instead of using the Lord's Supper to honour the Lord Jesus himself, they were using it to differentiate between one another, who they considered was and wasn't worthy of God's approval within the church community, giving more honour to those that they assumed God approved and less to others that they could easily overlook. As a result of those lower social status, uh, those with the lower social status were missing out on sharing in the Lord's Supper meal, while others were gorging themselves and becoming inebriated on wine. Now, the Christian church was infamous in the ancient world for openly embracing slaves and foreigners right alongside those of the highest social status. The Christian community was actually often broader in its makeup than most other kinds of club or gathering. But it seems in Corinth that those with the higher class were insisting, perhaps even, that the Christian slaves among them do the serving at the Lord's Supper. Or perhaps they just weren't bothering to wait for those who were serving as slaves and labourers elsewhere to come to the church gathering before getting stuck into the meal. And instead of being honoured as full members of the church, the slaves and the poor, those who had nothing, were being humiliated within the church in exactly the same way that they were being humiliated without of it. How could you so despise? How could you so hate the church of God, Paul exclaims, by entrenching such differences among you when you get together? Uh, Though our own culture is certainly not above showing favouritism in some pretty awful kinds of ways, our culture is markedly more egalitarian than that which existed in the Corinthian world. But it wasn't simply the social inequality of what was happening that so outraged Paul. Because of what the Lord's Supper was intended to proclaim and to promote, the Corinthians' behaviour was theologically scandalous as well. It was blasphemous even. Uh, Have a look with me at how Paul continues on in verse 23. Paul gives a a reason here why he is so scandalised at the way they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The ongoing celebration of the Lord's Supper, which was something that they did regularly together as a church, this ongoing celebration of the Lord's Supper was supposed to proclaim Jesus' own astounding humility in laying aside his glory in order to bear our guilt and shame in his own body on the cross. Everyone who ate from the one loaf of bread, everyone who drank from that one cup of wine were supposed to be proclaiming their common dependence upon, their equal partnership in, the Lord's giving of himself. The covenant, the guarantee of God's loving grace that Jesus had secured for them. And yet, by their actions, the wealthy and the socially elite among the church were using the meal in a way that implied they enjoyed God's approval more than others did. Their meals proclaimed or preached their own self-importance. Their Lord's Supper meals proclaimed and preached their own social status and standing. Their meals proclaimed what they imagined set them above the lesser believers who didn't even get to participate, really. Just as Judas had betrayed the Lord Jesus to crucifixion, so too were the church in Corinth betraying Christ's body and what it represented. Their practice of the Lord's Supper was a scandalous betrayal of the church's integrity. Uh, about a year or so ago, um, before the latest of the COVID lockdowns, uh, we had had a group of people from church get together to contribute and think about what kinds of values we think and hope and pray will characterise will typify us as a church community. One of those values that people in the church here identified was this one that's going to pop up on the screen now. That was the value of integrity. Uh, you can find all these values and a little explanation of them on the web page. In fact, on your service sheet, uh, you'll be able to find that by scanning the one at the bottom. But this one I particularly wanted to draw your attention to this morning. That is that we as a congregation, morning and evening, said that we wanted to be a people of integrity. We value honesty, authenticity and faithfulness so that what we teach and proclaim is aligned with how we live. And it's worth our, us asking ourselves from time to time whether this is of true of us as we'd like to think it is. Is what we preach and proclaim in alignment with how we act? and treat one another, because it was abundantly clear that such a value wasn't being reflected in how the Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. They were taking a meal that proclaimed Jesus' humble self-sacrifice and twisting and distorting it into something that proclaimed their own social standing and status. In the verses that follow, Paul goes on to describe how the Corinthians' approach to celebrating the Lord's Supper was fatally eroding their spiritual, their communal, and even their physical bodily integrity. 
Uh, have a look with me at verse 27 and follow. So we're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 27. Paul continues to write, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep there is a common euphemism in the ancient world for having died. They're eating of the Lord's Supper unworthily. That is, their use of the meal by the socially elite to honour themselves eroded their spiritual integrity. It made a mockery of the humility that Jesus himself displayed in giving his body and blood to cleanse them from their shame and sin. They were sinning against the significance of Jesus' body and blood. But their practice of the Lord's Supper also compromised their communal integrity. By excluding the poor and the slaves, the servant class, from the practice of the Lord's Supper, they failed to discern them as genuine members of Christ's body. They failed to recognise in the poor, the slaves, those with nothing, they failed to recognise them as genuinely equal members of the church, which is Christ's body. Uh, I was reading just this week uh, of a condition, uh, a somatonosia is apparently the name of the condition, uh, any medical experts can correct me for my pronunciation of that later on if you'd like to. It's a neurological condition in which a patient fails to recognise the integrity of their own body, perhaps failing to recognise even that their arm belongs to them, that their arm is their own, insisting that, no, no, this arm doesn't belong to me. I was reading of one situation in which a poor wife became so frustrated at night that she picked up what she thought was her husband's arm and tried to throw it in the bin because it kept lying on her and frustrating her trying to get to sleep at night, but it was her own arm and she was unable to recognise it, to discern it as belonging to herself. And the Corinthian behaviour in the Lord's Supper was a comparable failure of communal integrity, a failure to discern or to recognise in others a fellow member of the body of Christ to which they all belonged. And finally, and perhaps most shockingly to our modern ears, their practice of the Lord's Supper had ultimately compromised their very own bodily integrity, their very physical selves. They were weak, sick, and some had even died. Their eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper in such an unworthy manner had resulted in their own physical sickness and even death. They had eaten and drunk judgment upon themselves, Paul says down there in verse 29. Paul expands upon this, this judgment that has fallen upon the church in verses 31 and following, in our final verses. Uh, let's have a look there together, verse 31. Paul writes, 
But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. How Paul knew that the Corinthians were suffering God's judgment, he doesn't actually tell us. How did he know that the weakness, the illness, and even some of those deaths were a result of their eating of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? We don't know. Paul very rarely, almost never, draws a line between the suffering of believers and God's judgment. In fact, later this year, we're going to read together the epic poem of Job from the Old Testament, a book that warns directly against trying to draw direct links between another person's suffering and any particular wrongdoing on their behalf. Did Paul have here some direct spiritual insight as to what was happening? Was there perhaps some self-evident link between the gluttony and drunkenness of some and their failing health? I've got to admit, I'm not 100% sure how Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew what he knew. But either way, Paul identifies that what the Corinthians were suffering as something other than divine condemnation or rejection. This wasn't divine condemnation or rejection, it was quite the opposite. It was what Paul says is discipline. God was not enacting vengeance upon them, but training and discipline. God was disciplining them, he was training his children to recognise the consequences that flow from expressing such a neglect, such a self-hatred for the church, which is Christ's body. The kind of consequences that flow from despising or neglecting those who are actually one with us. Paul's desire is that Corinthians would regain the integrity of their church community. Not only the bodily integrity of their literal health, but the spiritual and community integrity of the church community as well. Have a look at the closing verses, verse 33 to 34. Paul concludes this pretty sobering passage. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it will not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. Paul says, and this is the application, I guess you could say, from today's passage. Paul says, eating together is the key to regaining their integrity as a church community. Eating together is the key to regaining both the integrity of their faith and their communal integrity as Christ's body, not to mention their own physical health. Osam, um, I can't even pronounce it now, so I'm not going to try and do it, but this, um, this condition that I mentioned before, this condition in which the patient fails to discern or recognise the integrity of their own body, one mode of treating this condition is to have the patient either wear special lenses or to look in specially designed mirrors that can trigger the patient's brain to reintegrate the neglected limb into how they view and think about themselves. 
trying to trick the brain into recognising once again this, this limb or this part of the body that they'd failed to discern as their own into seeing it as a genuine integrated part of who they themselves were. And friends, that is what the Lord's Supper, spiritually speaking, does for us. By participating in the Lord's Supper together, we're provoked to recognise one another as fellow members of Christ's united body. We're forced to recognise our belonging to one another because we're connected to the very same head, Christ. The Lord's Supper is absolutely not a ceremonial relic of ritualistic Christianity that we've kind of, you know, moved beyond now in our enlightened times, as some Protestants have tended to imply from time to time. Rather, the Lord's Supper is a remedy to the spiritual forgetfulness, failure to discern and recognise the other that afflicts modern church life just as much as it did for the ancient church in Corinth. The Corinthian behaviour was especially grievous because it took the practice that was specifically intended to proclaim and embody church unity, our shared dependence on Christ, and use it instead to reinforce divisions and ungodly distinctions from one another. And there have been other ways in which the church has perhaps likewise been guilty of failing to discern or recognise one another as fellow, full fellow members of Christ. And it's a cause of lament and repentance that that should be so. There's no way I could list all the ways in which churches have perhaps done this in the past, but there have been times in which churches have used various practices to reinforce or to legitimate racial segregation. In fact, there are times in the Middle Ages in which the Lord's Supper was actually used to stir up anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jewish folk, and was used to divide communities. There are times in church history when we've hidden behind church practices as an excuse to baptise misogynistic attitudes towards women. There are times in which we've organised church community to keep younger and older generations at a comfortable cultural distance from one another, so we don't tread on each other's toes. But friends, sharing in the Lord's Supper together is perhaps the best protection that the Lord Jesus has given us to safeguard the integrity of the church community, to guard against spiritual forgetfulness, failure to recognise our own body members, to guard against the spiritual failure to recognise in one another fellow members of Christ's body. Now, traditionally, Anglican churches have had a particular way of seeking to avoid fall into the kind of error, grievous error, that the Corinthian church suffered and that Paul is addressing today in betraying their unity together as members of Christ's body. And we're not going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, in fact, uh, and hopefully the reason why will become clear. We will celebrate it next week. This particular, particular practice, traditional practice in Anglican churches, is one that we're going to start doing together every week before the week that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So next week we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and so I'm going to share with you this traditional practice that I think is thoroughly helpful for us as we prepare to come and share in the Lord's Supper together.
On the Sunday before sharing the Lord's Supper, the minister would get up the front and exhort everyone with something like these words. If you think that you have injured not only God, but also your neighbour, then this week, ask for forgiveness of them both. Make good to the full extent of your ability any wrongdoing that you might have committed against them. You must likewise forgive others who have also injured you. Do this so that next week we might truly celebrate together with good conscience, conscience the forgiveness of sins that we share in together through the body and blood of Christ. And if there's anyone who cannot quieten their conscience then let them come and speak with me so that God's word might assure you of God's mercy and forgiveness and relieve you of all hesitation and doubt. Friends, those words used to get read every week in preparation to celebrate the Lord's Supper the week after. So then taking that opportunity to reconcile with one another as best as we're able, reconciliation often takes much longer than just one week to effect, and we'll think a little bit more about that later on this year. But in doing so, it means that when we come together again next week, we can share in the Lord's Supper together, confident that we really are expressing our oneness together as members of Christ's own body. How about I pray and ask that when we gather together next Sunday, that might shape how we celebrate the Lord's Supper with one another. Let's pray. Father, we give you hearty and humble thanks for the way in which the Lord Jesus himself gave his body and his blood. He laid aside his glory so that we might be cleansed from all shame and guilt and we might become your precious and chosen children. Father, we ask that we might not dare to dishonour the work that the Lord Jesus has done through his own death and resurrection. Help us to recognise, to discern in one another the body of the Lord Jesus himself and to love and treat one another in a way, in a manner that is fitting and worthy. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us this week to reconcile, to forgive, to ask forgiveness from all those that we might have wronged or been wronged by so that when we share in the Lord's Supper together next week, it might genuinely be as one people, drawn together through the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus himself, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our friends, we're going to spend some time responding to God's word in song uh, and in prayer following that. If you do have any questions, please feel free to scan that QR code at the bottom uh, and send them through and we might have a chance to look at them later on this morning.